Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Editor of the Quarterly Journal Regulation. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Peter. Thank you. This is my home away from home. Exactly. Before we get into how regulation has changed in the Trump administration, uh, let's step back and take a broader view of how regulation, the theory of regulation, the practice of it has changed since the 1970s or so. What I want to do today is, is give a little pushback to the current kind of cable news right of center notion that the, the regulatory state is out of control. And I just want to put it in some historical perspective. Um, I'm old enough to remember personally and have done research on uh, a regulatory state that was out of control, and it's the old one, but it's no longer here. So I briefly want to talk about that. Historically, regulation uh, meant price and entry regulation, and it comes out of the National Industrial Recovery Act enacted in the New Deal and then ruled unconstitutional. Businesses in World War One they loved planning. I mean, there's always been this interesting relationship between libertarian and or conservative thought and real businesses and the state in the sense that the notion that incumbent firms don't like the state is a uh, academic notion, but not a real world notion. <laughs> Many firms like the state, particularly if it does them favors. And this comes out of World War One. I. I mean, planning and managing markets started in World War One. The Depression was based on, or well, people had theories during the Depression that there was too much competition because there was deflation, right? Prices were falling. We had primitive understanding of monetary policy, and thus the many, many prominent people in the Depression believed that the problem was too much competition. The National Industrial Recovery Act was passed in the 30s, and it was to corporatize and syndicalize all major markets in the United States where, in effect, incumb you to run a business and, and to enter a business and the prices you charge, you would need permission of the government to enter and the government controlled the prices uh, that you would charge. And they ought to be higher than competition would permit because in the, in the day, competition and declining prices were seen as a problem, not as a good thing. So... NRA is ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, but Congress reenacts this notion in telecom, in oil, in agriculture, e energy, ag, airlines. So we kind of, even though the court got away or got rid of the act, in effect, we piecemeal put it back together one by one. So circa 1975, in a class like I took on regulation at the time, you would use Alfred Kahn's uh, sort of notions, and it was all about telecom, energy, airlines, uh, and that the prices were above market levels, and those were mm, often the term was natural monopoly would be invoked, even though it was incorrect, and things like that. So that's what regulation meant at that time, and then we deregulated well, all those. Quickly, things. what's the thinking behind the believing that? Declining prices due to competition is a problem. I mean, I can imagine if it's well, if the declining, depression. sure, I but mean, like, it, but even that, like, if it's if if you see declining, say, wages, that looks like that you could say that's a problem. Um, and if you think that competition is causing that, but but how do you get to prices 
declining prices being a problem because declining prices seem on their face well, we great, had, especially if people don't have true. much money. In the depression, right, wage we had deflation. So prices and wages were declining and labor was organized, uh, but so were firms because, of, as I said, the World War I context. So um, many, many intellectuals combined with firms generated uh, notions that price competition was a problem. Well, I think the wages was a, were a big part of it that, that you – with the National Industrial Recovery Act, you had the cartelization of – very mundane local industries like like laundry in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania or something like that and they would set the price for how much to press a pair of trousers or something like that and it was meant to keep the wages up. They'd also set the minimum wage and there you can't have good wages without good prices and I think that then some sort of stimulus idea although not very Keynesian in that way but at least getting people with higher wages to purchase more and so you would have more of this de fact, demand side theory of economics. You see some of the remnant of that kind of thinking today in the $15 minimum wage discussion about fast food workers and things like that. Again, sort of uh, give them more and they'll spend more and somehow it all works out, i.e., the fact that prices rise and demand falls somehow gets left out of the conversation. <laughs> but, but, um, so what happened in the 70s? Was it, was it an intellectual revolution combined with an observation of stagnation in certain in industries? Well, intellectual – as someone who practices the – uh, the I word, uh, I would – we probably give intellectual thought uh, too much credit, but but it played some role. Um, we've talked before in these podcasts about the, the movement at the University of Chicago, the foundation of the Journal of, the Law, of Journal of Law and Economics in the late 50s where Chicago economists basically said, well, let's look at all these regulated markets and see what what the effects are on producer and consumer welfare and they found that um, – these markets could be competitive. They weren't really monopolistic. That consumers paid way too high prices, uh, and um, we had reduced GDP as a result. This was an inefficient uh, but stable equilibrium politically. What changed was in for politics was inflation. Um, I'm again old enough to remember the buttons, uh, the wind buttons of Gerald Ford whip inflation now, <clears throat> and. Ted Kennedy actually running, thinking he was going to run. Well, he did run for president in 1980. So Ted Kennedy organized hearings uh, to, to, to show that prices within states uh, were lower for flying than between states because airlines were regulated only at the interstate level and, and things like that. So we had airline deregulation. Freight deregulation because freight railroads were going bankrupt. Uh, then trucking deregulation followed. So anyway, the... The price and entry regulation uh, in, in energy and transportation and telecom all occurred in my young adulthood and we all breathed a sigh of relief and said, oh my goodness, now we're, it's over. Well, it, it, it wasn't over and we now then can drift into a discussion of the, the, the regulation that people talk about now is about health and safety and the environment and that that depending on your point of view, that oppressive or or purposeful regulatory state is now what people are actually talking about when they mean regulation. But the old regulation that really was very destructive has gone and has not come back. 
And I think our listeners need to be reminded that we, over a long period of time, we really did make progress on that front, and that is that's good. It's kind of interesting because Richard Nixon, at the beginning of the seventies, and then at the end or beginning of the eighties, Ronald Reagan, in that transition, because Richard Nixon both put price controls on things. His inflation was 5%. He put the whole economy on wage and price controls for 90 days. Which seems like the old style of regulation. Yes. And he was a Republican. And then, but he also signed, I think he signed the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, or, uh, the Endangered Species Act, definitely created the EPA. Uh, so these things, yes. were, which were kind of the new regulatory state as well, a, and then price controls. It's still the, the struggle today, which is Ed Muskie uh, was going to run for president in 72. And he was in the Senate, and, and Earth Day happened in '69, and so environmentalism, you know, the, it becomes uh, the Republican fear was that um, they need to do something about this so that it this goes away as a political problem, and Nixon's answer was the EPA, and then the, there's a political science literature about. Um, what's called policy beyond capability or speculative augmentation in a bidding war between parties. And so um, Muskie and Nixon competed over who is going to do the most. Um, so, I, I mean, ironically, political competition is good, but political competition can also drift us into the never-never land uh, in this kind of policy context. Um, I'll give you a sense that... Um, the new regulation, unlike the old, was unrealistic, ambitious goals to cleanse, to purify the environment, followed by lots of missed deadlines and lawsuits. Um, give the listeners a sense of how different the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts are than the old uh, regulation. Um, by 2005... Only 338 deadlines in the Clean Air Act, of, of the two, 338 deadlines in the Clean Air Act, only 37 had been met. I think, I think the Clean Air, Clean Air Act is 1990, around there. Is that correct? Oh, that's the, the amendments. The, the, amendments. the first was 70. Okay. And then the Clean Air Act amendments of 77, and then the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, which set up the sulfur dioxide emissions trading program, among other things. But uh, so what I'm talking about is is the Going deadlines back. in 70 and 77. Basically, none of them had been met and still haven't. <laughs> and, and Are they and, just too, too audacious of goals? They're ambitious, right. I mean, and, and again, the congressional politics literature says no one gets unelected for being on the right side. But people get unelected for being on the wrong side, and no one cares about actual outcomes. That's the weird. See, good public policy, good policy implementation, is a in an economist way of talking about it, a pure public good, which is, it's hard for individual members to claim credit for this collective outcome because it's a collective outcome, and thus we're in this weird. In the second era of regulation, we're in this real world where we have statutes that have ambitions, very great ambitions that are not possible. That then leads to lobbying by industry basically for um, and or other affected constituents for deals somehow to kind of make this go away. 
Congress com- complies with this not by revising the statute, but by putting little riders in appropriation bills in, in language that no one understands that says this firm in this district with this latitude and longitude shall not have to do X and Y and Z and Q. And those are private goods, right, from a, from a member of Congress's point of view. They, in effect, were buying and selling indulgences like the, the old Catholic Church um, and that leads to campaign contributions and electoral support, and that's privatizable. The The member can say, I did this. And so the ironically, from a libertarian rule of law perspective, is that this horrible statute that's not you couldn't implement if you were God, no one wants to actually make it realistic because the unrealism is actually part of the new game, which is buying and selling indulgences. Um, and that's, it's a. I think it's a very powerful equilibrium, even though it's a, a sad one from from our perspective. Do you think that was intended, or were they? Did they have lofty goals and and then slowly realized that it was probably un, unmeetable, or that they said, "Hey, we can pass lofty goals, get credit for lofty goals." You know, Congress gets credit for having at least goals, and and then we can give exemptions, grandfather people in, uh, exempt different types of pollution and, and things like that, and, and it will all be fine, and no one will notice the exemptions. I think gradually members learned what Trevor is describing. That is, I don't I, – I think too – I think we shouldn't read too much intentionality into all this, but I think um, you have described what, what happened, and – um, the fact that it's so state I mean, we don't amend statutes anymore. That's what I mean. This this whole Trump revolution, right? They talk about deregulation. It's all a kind of Gene Healy nightmare, to use my colleague as an adjective, which is the executive as God who can do this. Well, if you don't like what the Clean Air Act does and think it's onerous, then let's change what's in it. But I I, I have not heard or read anybody of any persuasion on any political dimension actually argue that, gee, we ought to revisit the Clean Air Act. I mean, except maybe me, but <laughs> but, but, but I'm saying no, um, it's remarkable how little constituency is there is for changing statutes. This, this lack though of movement towards the goals or lack of <clears throat> achievement of the goals, is it for – not for want of trying like are did companies how quickly did companies kind of figure out that they had this alternative method which was to just lobby for carve outs quickly i mean i've i've um i was we've talked about alan altschuler's book before in in our podcast and that was i was a senior at mit alan altschuler was a professor of urban politics and policy and was commissioned by the dot to write a book on the urban transportation system. And I was a research assistant and I, that's where I started learning and reading about energy and energy markets. And uh, in the book, which is 1979, <laughs> the already we were writing about how the, these, the, the Clean Air Act of 1777 were not possible and they stated by 1980, whatever, the air would be clean. And Immediately, uh, the ambient air quality control plans that each state had to submit to the EPA. Well, what they did is, well, the hmm, if we really need to crack down, here's what we need: we need emission charges, we need gasoline taxes, we need surcharges on parking, we need to restrict people from downtown. 
well, my goodness, the you-know-what hit the fan. And businesses and constituents said, what? I can't. I mean, I want the environment clean, but I don't really want to change anything in my life that actually I care about or raise prices or stop driving or whatever. But I want somebody somehow to figure out an invisible way to make the world better without changing anything in my life. So immediately the appropriations bills for the EPA said the EP, no federal money shall be used to enforce the state ambient air quality control plan, which has the following in it, restrictions on parking, uh, restrictions on parking garages, gasoline surcharges, gasoline, ta- et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, all the things economists would recommend as a way to alter behavior to result in fewer emissions, all those things were banned by these little riders and appropriations bills pretty much from the start. And then everyone runs for the environment and then quietly kind of says, geez, you know, if we really do this, you'll go out of business or you can't get to work or it'll be expensive and you'll notice and you'll unelect me. And therefore, we'll get we'll eliminate all these as possibilities. Instead, we'll just gang up on businesses as bad or but we never say drivers are bad because they vote. <laughs> and, and so it's this game has been going on ever all my scholarly adult lifetime. So one of the things that happened during the Obama administration that's related to the Clean Air Act, at least, or at least this problem of emissions, is the clean power plan that that has been altered a little bit under the Trump administration, if we can get into some of what's happening now, but on this air quality kind of level. So what was the clean power plan under the Obama administration? Clean power plan was a, a big deal in some sense, and yet not that big a deal in some substantive sense. Because of fracking, the price of natural gas has plummeted. And thus, and and the efficiencies and learning that have taken place in electricity production mean that natural gas combined cycle, which is a fancy word for a natural gas turbine, like a jet engine, uh, put, put on its side, and then waste heat is used to heat steam. So that's not just exhausted into the, the heat is is kept and, and, and used to make steam, and that's used to, to produce uh, electricity in a standard way, and the jet turbine also produces electricity. Those plants are now um, much smaller in, in the cost of capital than a traditional coal or nuclear plant, and yet um, cost-effective uh, on a fuel basis because of the tremendous decrease in the price of natural gas. And so... Coal plants uh, have been declining uh, because of this price revolution. And at the margin, we're not basically building any new coal plants. So coal is declining. So then there's the old coal plants. Well, they're in place because of grandfathering. And that's part of the Clean Air Act game that I've described. So you've got these very old hunks of capital. A third of them sort of don't have any emission controls at all because they were grandfathered in, they existed before 1970. And that's a valuable right, right? If you can burn and not have to do anything about it, that's very valuable. So the Clean Power Plan went after, in effect, these old uh, power plants with no emission controls at all. Um, and then Trump has retreated a bit. And ironically, let me, but let me give you some of the data. The, um, with no rules at all, Coal electricity 
would experience a 23% drop in production by 2030. Under the Obama plan, they would have dropped 29%, i.e. 6% more than than, uh, business as usual. The Trump plan, in effect, is better than what would have occurred with no rules at all under the old – because – the Trump plan it, it revisits some of this so-called old source, new source business in coal-fired power plants and allows these dinosaurs to kind of keep cranking it out uh, for as long as they can. Uh, and But again, uh, the number of states that would have not been in compliance, in other words, the difference in who would or would not be in compliance under the Obama plan versus the Trump plan, it only affects 12 states. And they're all basically in the middle of the U.S., coal-fired dependent, uh, and with one exception, New Jersey. And I've inquired around New Jersey's. Well, sorry, New Jersey's the only eastern state, and it's the only blue state that would have been uh, negatively affected by the Obama uh, Clean Power Plan. And so, to partisans, the Clean Power Plan looked like an attack on red states and not on blue and blue states. Basically, have already gotten rid on coal, which is why it's easy for them to beat up on other states. So there is a, 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 a partisan element to this, with the exception of New Jersey. And I've been digging around, and I've gotten nowhere trying to figure out why New Jersey. Why New Jersey? What's the story? Anyone care about it? I've talked to some journalists, and they're going to actually. They said that's a good idea for a story. So maybe <laughs> we'll find out what's uh, going on in New Jersey. So it's not that it, it, we wouldn't call this. De, like some massive deregulatory effort by the Trump administration. It's a it's a modification on the margins. It's this game. The game we've been playing with very old uh, coal plants, which have no emission controls at all, which has been going on ever since 77. That game, everyone thought it was over, that the Supreme Court rulings and the new source performance standards. And during the Bush years, we had this game of how much could you maintain an old plant for how many years before it was declared to be a new source? And there's just endless litigation over this. And most of us thought that that was gone away. And then, in effect, Trump is uh, – the patient was, you know, in in the last stages of, of death. But there's been a, a little revival here. and But it's all going to be litigated. So we don't – I mean, again, we don't know um, – this so How given that we assume work. so pollution we that these are all motivated by believing pollution has costs plus all this litigation has costs plus I mean there, there's a lot of costs involved in this why don't do people just like you could just buy scrubbers for all these plants like why why do it on the direction of what's the motivation for doing it on the direction for saying like we're gonna we're gonna restrict like these old plants shut them down or whatever else versus like we're going to subsidize them to bring them up to code and that way you don't have these kind of political – You're asking politically why no yeah. one is proposed or, or throwing – Or the, the a... other question is it might just be like prohibitively expensive or impossible. It's I don't not know. impossible. It's ex- I mean again, the, the third of the plants have nothing on them and then the rest of the coal plants do have scrubbers and they put them on and they actually um, – b- believe it or not, there's – well, you shouldn't be surprised. There are divisions within the utility uh, community over – they said, look, we, at the margin, many of these plants did put on scrubbers and now you're saying you're going to help the guys who didn't uh, hang on when we did. And so they're 
there are divisions, you know, within the utility community over whether this was or wasn't a done deal or not. And then, again, uh, if if regulations can change uh, with the coming and going of presidents, then investment certainty is we're acting. We're not a third world country, but um, corporations really like to have long term certainty about things. Because these, in, these in, I mean, electricity investments are very long-lived, it's, and thus um, all the plants that put in the scrubbers that are now undermined by this kind of, let's call it the West Virginia revival strategy. Uh, <laughs> um, so there have been some corporate dissent, actually. So business is not unified about this this Trump going backwards strategy. On a broader level with Trump in general, even aside from just clean air and environmental uh, questions, what, what have we seen in terms of regulatory behavior under the Trump administration as a general? Well, uh, new regulations have slowed to a trickle. So he promised that he would put a stop to stuff and that has happened. It, it, it really has. An article in my journal, Regulation, uh, said, um, let's see, um, Post-1996, new regs cost about $30 billion on average in the first seven months of an administration. And the Trump administration's total for the first seven months was just $590 million. So we really – so you, you mean you can bring a stop to things and they have done that. Eventually, there are lawsuits and – and then they, the courts rule you can't just stop. You have to do something. So, Are there examples of like regulations that looked like they were going to go into effect that didn't? So like what, what kind of stuff are we not getting as a result of this slow to trickle? Um, good question. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Do I have – well, there are some other Any ones that are not that are not necessarily in the energy or environmental realm, like such as uh, uh, the Obama transgender bathroom rule for schools. That was that was an interpretive rule that the Trump administration just said, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, so some some of those things when they have the freedom to do that. Well, that's overturning. I mean, Aaron's asking a different question, which is what did we know was in the pipeline or we speculated was in the pipeline. Yeah, like what that, by that this hasn't... time, if we had President Hillary, what kinds of things might we have seen that we're not <laughs> seeing now? Um, very good question, and I'm. Um, I can't. Nothing comes to mind. I mean, we. I can do some homework. I would to, imagine cracking down further on on power would be one of the things, or at least enforcing the Obama plan and making it more rigid, possibly. Maybe, but no. Aaron's asking a very good question, which is what's what's the counterfactual that would have occurred under under the uh, alternative administration and. Um, I've been keeping track of other things. What's interesting, though, is given all the things I read, no one else seems to have been writing much about that either. So um, nothing comes to mind standing out. I mean, I can list um, instead what there are were many, many articles. And I wrote my own list, actually, of rules that were in place that I thought the administration would probably try to undo. Um, and that... Uh, that I have a, a, a list of, but even then, and you're both lawyers, and I'm not. So, you, uh, my sense as a non-lawyer is that the races for president now overemphasize how much the ship of state can be changed by just a simple change in executive. That 
the rule of law and the administrative law in particular were designed to not allow that. Just, in other words, you can't just undo rules and say in your answer, why, we won the election. That is not sufficient under administrative law. You have to develop a factual record, is my understanding, which says that the factual record that that un, that supported the earlier rules of the year, previous administration, the world has now changed, and we're going to tell you why, and thus we're going to implement the same law, but in a different way because the the facts have changed. Well, that for most of the discussion we've had today, the um, the facts haven't changed, and so my sense is, uh, and there already have been court rulings that say, "Dear President Trump, you." You and your administration cannot simply just change what we do because you won the election. It's so not sufficient. That brings up – there's this this narrative that I've heard um, <clears throat> that Trump came in as you – know, there was expected to be kind of the, the great deregulator um, and he still gets the story of his first two years is you know, he's – among all the other things he's done, at least he's been – you know, and kind of people looking for a silver lining, people on our side looking for a silver lining, at least he's deregulated. But I've heard kind of this counter narrative from people that in fact, he's been attempting to do a fair amount of deregulation, but because of kind of the lack of expertise that he's surrounded himself with, the the people um, in the administration, the way they've gone about it, they've done a bad job procedurally they they haven't been very good at it in the way they've gone about it and, and so as a result they've been far less effective in deregulating than they or we might have hoped is there any truth to that narrative i might change it slightly which is that all administrations now overclaim and overemphasize what they can do because not it's not that at the trump administration if it were fully staffed and totally functional could withstand court challenges is that the facts really haven't changed enough so that the previous rule can be thrown out. Um, I'll give you, I mean, and it affected Obama as well. Obama overread, right? Presidents, because Congress doesn't revise statutes and because of what we described earlier, you whip up people to think the president matters a lot in Obama. I mean, both the right and the left do this. So the Obama overtime rule, right? Changing that the the salary at which uh overtime rules no longer apply was $23,000. So basically overtime just didn't matter for anybody who called themselves managers in a retail setting. Um yes they're in charge but they're not paid that as as that much. So Obama said let's make it $43,000 or something like that. And whoa Businesses, they said, "Oh my goodness, this is gonna, this is big deal." Well, I remember the, all the the meetings in at Cato about when our HR team was trying to figure out what this would mean for you know. There's people in the building who make less than that. There's people in the building who make more than that. People are gonna have to start punching time cards now. You're you might have to tell like your research assistant they can't come in. On, they can't was, work on the weekend. It was insane, no. like what it would have the effects it would have had. You probably we're all breathing a sigh of relief that the courts threw out the overtime rule. Right? So um, the courts threw out the fiduciary rule, which was also Obama, right? So, 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 um, and should we talk about the, I mean, uh, for yeah. our listeners, yeah, just, sure. I mean, this notion for that mutual funds uh, that are managed, or if you have a financial advisor, that 
there's this language that there's been a scrum over for, as best I can tell, something like 60 or 70 years in which the uh, financial managers that sell you funds for which they make a commission or from which they make a commission, many, many have always said that's a conflict of interest and we ought to get rid of that. And then others have said, no, that's the way money management advice works. And so Dems put in this saying, basically ruling that out as a possibility. Well, the <laughs> anyway. Um, that one was gone too. That yeah. one's gone too by the court saying you can't use the Department of Labor, you know, and if the law they tried to introduce this rule through really wouldn't allow that. Um, so in the uh, – So anyway, the, the – the, Yes, Trump has tried to do everything he said he would do, but we're going to have to wait a while to see whether the courts allow all of that to happen or not. If we look at the sort of slowdown of at least regulatory activity and some changes to some things like the Clean Power Plan, uh, I think people in the administration and definitely Trump himself uh, would say we have this great economy. Uh, we have, at least on some metrics, the stock market's a little volatile, but we have super low unemployment and growing an economy. And he would say that my deregulatory efforts are the cause of that, that we, that we, we, we put more energy into the economy because we put, we took away red tape. Is that a defensible position? Probably not. I mean, the corporate tax cut probably matters a whole lot more for the evaluation of equities than regulation. Uh, regulation matters in the long run. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, certainly when Jeff Meyer and I talk about this, we have, uh, well, the, the kind of normal right of center uh, argument that the regulatory state is somehow killing the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if anything, the regulatory state was, as I started this discussion about. I said it was much bigger and more pronounced in the 70s. And we had higher productivity growth in the 70s than we do now. So when you do kind of a simple regression of, of something called, you know, uh, how big a deal regulation was, and again, it's very hard to measure, uh, but sort of the deadweight losses created by things, they were larger then than they are now. Uh, but our fights over regulation now are more intense and they're much more part. I mean, it's it's uh, so the Dems are claiming everything could be solved with more regulation. The Republicans say everything you want could be solved with less regulation. And I think it's not really regulation they're talking about. They're talking about whether you're Democratic or Republican. I mean, it's a, it almost become a surrogate word for which side you are rather than the name of something independent, which we could investigate and actually uh, figure out. But so regulation does matter. Uh, but even some of the Clean Air Act stuff, I, I, there are articles in the literature that say what basically happened is that industry rearranged its location from, say, dense places in New Jersey and it went to other places. You know, in other words, so counties which were not in compliance with the Clean Air Act and thus under, let's call it, I, know, I'm, I hope I'm not using the, the, the legal term, strict scrutiny under the Clean Air Act, uh, those places you couldn't really expand your plant. And so where did the plants go? They went else. They went across borders, which were cleaner. And thus, what we did is kind of redistribute pollution across space 
um, rather than change. To, you know, and and at the same time, ambient admissions have been going, have been trending down. But we also did a lot of rearranging a, across space. Does this mean then that when we're measuring the the national effects, say, of regulation over time, that we somewhat miss some of that? <clears throat> localized effects so that the the new regulation comes in there's a time when i mean moving your business to another state is expensive both in you know monetary and in efficiency and time wasted and all that it's also damaging to you're moving your business out of that state to you may not actually move what you do is you expand in other words if you have multiple plants what you do is you don't expand some and you expand others um the the process of literally shutting down a whole operation and then physically starting up somewhere is probably not what I'm describing. It's more like at the margin, are you going to grow in Newark or are you going to grow in Indiana? I think that's a good, I think a good way to segue into, it's sort of like regulatory arbitrage you're practicing. And one of the things that we've talked about that does feature a lot of regulatory arbitrage and has changed in the Trump administration are cafe standards. Uh, how, what are the CAFE standards? How do those work and, and what's going on with that now? Well, CAFE is an acronym that stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy. And this uh, law and regulations uh, were first enacted in 1975 during the first so-called oil crisis. And again, the, the sense was, ironically, um, the belief was that Consumers, when faced with choices between gas guzzlers and that were cheaper to buy but more expensive to operate relative to a car that costs more to buy but would be cheaper to operate in the long run because it consumed less fuel per mile, that consumers wouldn't get that calculation right and would thus uh, buy the uh, misguidedly buy the cheaper capital stock that would lead to higher energy use. And seems kind of weird. I mean, it's like consumers buy new windows for their house because it will save on their heating bill in like a 10 year period, right? Like, but isn't it, the claim the is consumers won't. But I isn't know, it they, but like, they do. <laughs> well, but they, look at <clears throat> like the, but it's like cell phone subsidization. Like it used to be, it's not really the case anymore, but it used to be that you got your cell phone for free or at a very for free and quotes even though the total um, cost the total cost is much higher month. because your monthly bill and and that everyone like no one would figure that no out. one figured like and and when when companies started switching it was like i'm not going to spend 700 dollars for a cell phone even though it was over the course of ownership turned out to be a lot cheaper so that seems like an example of consumers behaving in exactly the way that people feared the left has always thought consumers wouldn't figure this out. Economists have always been more optimistic. The literature supports the economist's view. So the, the original rationale for CAFE was the inability of consumers to – I mean Detroit thought, well, there was this belief that unless consumers <coughs> were – or sorry, firms were forced to make gas-efficient vehicles, they would not because consumers wouldn't buy them. And it was like, what? Well, just – and firms didn't want competition. That's the other. I mean, if we all have to supply fuel-efficient vehicles, then none of us will compete on fuel economy. Well, again, regulation dulls competition. That's why we don't want regulation. So, cafe. The the origins of cafe are, are all um, basically very misguided economics. The literature has been very supportive of consumers 
um, and there we can post some articles and links, uh, you know, on the the data for this podcast to, that people can read about that. Uh, now, later, um, CAFE's been hijacked to deal with global warming, right, to reduce CO2 emissions rather than, uh, you know, gasoline efficiency per se. Along the way, Obama, in, in this transformation of the Clean Air Act from normal pollution to a, a CO2 pollution, Obama By cut, normal pollution, you mean like the hazy smog yes, over a city versus yes. CO2, yes. So-called traditional fossil fuel nastiness, uh, NOx, uh, SO2, and particulate matter. Uh, in the transformation of the Clean Air Act is something to worry about that to something to worry about CO2, the Obama administration cut a deal with the uh, auto manufacturers to transform CAFE, which is 27.5 miles per gallon, et cetera, et cetera, to a, a footprint standard, which is the bigger the vehicle, the less um, fuel efficient it had to be. And this is a very, I mean, again, what American firms are very good at at building and selling in part because of the tariff on imported trucks, which we should talk about. <laughs> They're protected. So GM, Ford uh, can build and sell trucks, and they're good at it. But trucks use a lot of – they use more uh, fuel. So a, foot, a footprint cafe standard allowed, in effect, American firms to build trucks and to, that are not as fuel efficient. So we don't have a 27.5 anymore. We have a 6 – footprint um, uh, and the footprint literally is the size it's it's a it's the a size of the chassis this, like well the, it's it's a uh it's how long it is and how wide it is and the longer and wider the less fuel efficient what's the conceptual uh, link between so why so we we have a switch from a fixed mile per gallon standard to like miles per gallon per square foot of space the vehicle takes up sort standard. Of, yes. And and at the same time this is presumably motivated by a switch from tra traditional pollution standard or goal to CO2. What is the conceptual relationship between I don't see, how is CO2 related to how big the car is? Like what well, when if you're burn, trying to explain why this would make sense. It doesn't. It it's not about it was a deal, right? It's so so the deal that's said in the newspapers was 54 miles per gallon is now the standard. And it has to be the average of your whole fleet, right? Is well, it's a sales weighted, but it's also okay. footprint. It, this is it, – it's so – so all the, the press release that all the journalists bought and told us about was 54. And 54 is so much greater than what any of us are getting now. It sounds like Obama's wonderful. It sounds like the Dems have solved all our problems by making the companies do wonderful things for us. But that's the <laughs> but standard for – That we wouldn't demand anyway. Hoverboard. Exactly. <laughs> 54 is for – it's for things that sort of don't exist. The, also, smart, the smart car, maybe. It's also done as a test. It's not real world. See, that's the other thing. Then there's a whole translation device that you can find online, which is the EPA dynamometer test. How do they translate into real world mileage? And the answer is a lot less. <laughs> so it's, it's all the, a joke. Well, and one of the best examples but of this. If liberal, I mean, talk to people at a suburban dinner party and they'll go, 
54 was and the Trump guys ruined it. You see what I mean? Yeah. If it, it's it's anyway. And I like um, that, but my one of my favorite stories you've told me, and because we mentioned regulatory arbitrage, with this footprint of the car size, you had things like the PT Cruiser. Correct? Well, that's even under the old cafe. There was one kind of arbitrage under the old pre-footprint cafe, which is we had two footprint. Well, we had the statute separated light trucks from cars. Well, light truck was defined in a certain way, and it was defined as being so much off the ground. Well, if you've ever wondered why the PT Cruiser, the Chrysler car, was so bizarrely, why it looked weird, it's because it is Chrysler's light truck. And that helped it, it get better cafe fleet It average. counted because the standard for light trucks was always less stringent than for cars. That's why station wagons went away. I mean... The the irony of so when I grew up, right? Everyone had old, I mean, big families, and you had an Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser or a Ford Country Squire station wagon with a fake wood paneling, and you had the optional third rear seat and all that. Well, where do station wagons go? And the answer is cafe. So why do what are minivans about? They're light trucks. So you you can't have a station wagon now and and satisfy cafe standards and even the old ones and so but you can't have a minivan because it's a light truck so the pt cruiser and then the suv the ford explorer and then the the arms race and that was because they're light trucks and so we always treated light trucks differently now we have in effect a six foot print rather than just two and the bigger your vehicle the less stringent the standard under the new cafe and it was done by a, a liberal democrat that's the irony because it's a, a deal and the automakers went along because this helped them it reduced competition and it allowed them to do what they do best which is to make big large trucks for america for american, american suburban yeah, yeah. families and they somehow don't feel guilty about all and this and you said there's a large tariff this is why Nissan or Toyota or people can't really get in the truck market in America because the Ford, Ford F-150, the reason that they're, I mean, I just read yesterday, right? The automakers are stopping production of most sedans, quote unquote, because they can't sell them. Well, you know why they're selling like trucks? Because there's a 20, 25%. You have to check, check with my trade colleagues. It's some enormous tariff on like trucks that started under Reagan and it protects American firms from world competition and the profit, the markups on American light trucks. I mean, I'm stunned when I see, I mean, these people pay $48,000 for something that doesn't have a roof. I mean, <laughs> what, what, what the heck is – anyway. Uh, so, yeah, cafe and trucks and protectionism and – And they'll never take that away. I mean, I would – it would be – if Trump wanted to actually make deals on trade, you'd think that – China or Japan or someone would say, well, you need to take down your tr truck tariffs and maybe we'll give you something in return. But that would that would make it's, the auto industry well, it's, go, go bankrupt, well, essentially. It's been in place so long that the rest of the world firms don't do – they don't make those things. Yeah, that's true. So they just – I mean, yeah, they don't have, even try. Yeah. They'd have to gear <laughs> up and change their behavior. Interesting. Um, and they don't seem I, – I, I don't know about you, but I haven't read any articles hinting that – you know, Fiat wants to make a, 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 a big, well, Alfa Romeo sort of has a kind of SUV, right? But it's, it's, it's not, they're not selling well. And so I don't, I don't, well, 
never predict about future markets, but I don't see world, even if we drop the tariff to zero, eventually something would happen, but but it would take a while because the, the rest of the world seems to have ceded that to American uh, manufacturers. So overall, if we look at just the way this deregulation, regulation story t is, is told, and it always is the case that the Democrats complain about deregulation and the Republicans complain about regulation and the underlying reality is in so many different ways is much more nuanced and interesting. And complicated. Each each, each side, yeah, that it's sad about political discourse that um, it is once something becomes politicized, the language used to discuss this thing becomes – conveys nothing. It, other than that, we're fighting. We don't like each other. Vote for the other. Vote for us, not the others, etc. The um, and so sadly, the term regulation, which has been my whole life, is now nothing more than a a politicized epithet used hurled by everybody um, without regard to underlying content. And it's um, for those who are interested, though, they're my publication regulation. We talk about the guts of things and we talk about it in these uh, podcasts. But for Trump supporters, Trump is doing what he said he would do. He is not uh, hes not uh, doing like many candidates, which is I said some things in the heat of political battle and now I'm really governing in a different way. Uh-uh. He is, he is trying to do what he was said he was going to do. The problem is a lot of that is administratively not kosher and thus the court's I predict probably not going to allow a lot of uh, what he's trying to do to actually stand. Um, and there's much more mischief by the Dems than uh, in the same regard, which is we talked about the overstretching things, uh, which then the courts throw out. And so both sides are electing people to try to do things that are not possible. And that That's sad. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.